Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 21 to 25 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 21 The Land of Hellas The stories of gods and heroes are not pure history. They are myths or legends which have grown with the ages until sometimes they are told as though they are true. Although the tales I have been telling you of the early days of Greece are myths, yet the Greeks who lived in later times would often speak of them as though they actually had happened. I am going to tell you now, not of gods or heroes, but of the true deeds of mortal men. And first of all, you will wish to hear a little about the land in which the ancient Greeks lived. It was named, as you already know, Hellas, while the inhabitants were called Helenas. But Hellas and her people had another name given to them by the Romans, who called Hellas Grecia and the Hellenus, Grishi, from a tribe that dwelt in a part of the country known as Epirus. Epirus was not a very important region, but it was well known to the Romans who dwelt in the south of Italy. We have altered these Roman names a little, and call Hellas Greece the Hellenus Greeks. If you open the atlas at the map of Europe, you will find in the south the little country of Greece, which although it is so small, has yet flung its influence over all the wide world. On three sides, Greece is bounded by the Mediterranean Sea, and the country is now usually known as the Balkan Peninsula. Greece is a land of great mountains. Of its loftiest summit, Olympus, which in ancient days was the abode of the gods, you have already read. The coastline is broken up much as is the coast of Scotland, by arms of the sea which run far inland, so far inland that it is easy to reach the water from any part of the country. Close to the shores of Greece lie the islands of the Egan Sea. In these islands, many Greeks settled, so that they became an important part of Greece. The Egan Sea we now call the Archipelago. In the time of Homer, all Greeks were called Achaeans, but in later days, only those Greeks were called Achaeans who lived in the narrow strip of land 
in northern Peloponnesus called Achaea. The ancient Achaeans dwelt in the valleys, which were cut off from one another by great spurs of mountains. They were united by an ancient league, and quarrelled less with one another than did the other peoples of Greece. Besides the Achaeans, there were three other great races in Greece. The Dorians came from a little country called Doris, near the famous pass of Thermopylae, of which you have still to hear. The Ionians dwelt on the east side of the Egan Sea, that is, they lived on the coast of Asia, while the Elonians were scattered here and there throughout Greece. All these different tribes were Greeks, and they were proud of their name, counting all other peoples barbarians and despising them because they were not Greeks. Many of them were traders or adventurers from Asia, and they entered the new country from the northeast through Thessaly, and that was not a difficult journey. Others crossed over from Asia by sea to search for a new home, but their galleys were rough, uncomfortable vessels in which there was little room for the many who embarked. When storms arose, they suffered great misery, huddled closely together on their small and unseaworthy boats. Fear, too, took hold of them, and the horror of death so the wanderers were glad when they saw the many little islands that were studded here and there over the Egan Sea. Some of these islands, it is true, were mere rocks, desolate and without water. But there were others where people had already settled and made a home. On these the strangers landed to fight with the inhabitants, until, by the help of the gods, they had conquered and taken possession of them. Here they feasted, glad of heart that the perils of the sea were now at an end. In the heroic age, the kings of the different tribes were believed to have descended from the gods, and each country or state had its own king. And so it was when the heroic age had passed away. Each tribe or little nation, living in its own valley or plain, still had its own separate sovereign and each soon built for itself a city. The city might be small, but it was always surrounded by a wall, which was built for defence. If there was no wall, it was not a city, but a village, however large it might be. In those days, kings were not ashamed to work. They were often to be seen in the fields at harvest time, not looking idly on, but toiling side by side with their people. Odysseus, king of Ithaca, is said to have built his own bedroom as well as his own boats. He claimed to be a skilful ploughman and reaper, and still 
for many years after the age of Odysseus. Kings worked as hard as he had done. The queens and princesses were as diligent as the kings. Often they were found, like Penelope, sitting at a loom, weaving or working beautiful embroideries. They even went to the well themselves to fetch water, and were sometimes to be seen by the riverside, where they helped to wash the linen of the household. In the battle, the king was always on the field, riding before his armies in a war chariot. When peace reigned, he often sat in the marketplace to judge his people. Each suppliant told his own tale and brought his own witnesses. The elders of the city then gave their judgment of the case, after which the king, taking his scepter in his hand, stood up to pronounce the sentence. But above all else, the king was the chief priest of his people, offering sacrifices for them, while they, with due reverence, looked upon him as a god. Chapter 22 Lycurgus and His Little Nephew The Dorians were a brave and sturdy race, braver, perhaps, than any other of the Greek tribes. Apollo, the sun god, one of the noblest of the Olympians was the god they held in greatest reverence. A band of these Dorians came from the north and settled in the valley of Laconia, through which flows the river of Eurotus. Here they built villages and called them Lacedaemonians. Before long, five of these villages joined together to form a city, which was named Sparta. Sparta became the capital or chief city in Laconia. At first the new city was weak, scarcely able to hold her own against the neighbouring tribes and much less able to add to her dominion. She was indeed hardly able to keep order within her own borders. Sparta was ruled not by one king, but by two, and so you might perhaps think that she would be governed better than any other city or state. But this was not so. The first kings were twin brothers, for an oracle had bidden the Spartans to take both as kings, but to give greater honour to the elder. Instead of helping each other to improve their country, the two kings often disagreed and then spent their days in quarrelling. The people were content that they should do so, for while the kings quarrelled, they had no time to frame stricter laws or to punish those who disturbed the peace of the city. It soon became clear that if Sparta was to grow great, and prosperous, a strong man must be found to guide the kings as well as the people. This strong man was found in Lycurgus, the famous lawgiver. 
History tells little about the life of the lawgiver, but many legends cluster around his name. It is told that Lycurgus belongs to one of the royal houses, and that when his elder brother died, he became for a short time one of the kings of Sparta. The queen mother was an ambitious woman, and she wished still to sit on the throne as she had done while her husband was alive. So she said to Lycurgus that she would kill her tiny baby boy, who would one day be king, if he would marry her. But the lawgiver was angry and rebuked the queen mother for wishing to do such a wicked deed. One night, as he sat at supper with the chief men of Sparta, Lycurgus ordered his little nephew to be brought to him. When the child was carried into the room, he took him in his arms, and holding him up for all to see, he cried, Men of Sparta, here is a king born unto us. Before them all he placed the babe on the throne, and as the child had not yet been named, he called him Charileus, the joy of the people. From that time Lycurgus became the guardian of his little nephew and the regent of the kingdom. So upright were his ways, so honest his words, that he was reverenced by the people as greatly as when he was king. Meanwhile, the queen mother had not forgiven Lycurgus for thwarting her ambition, and she determined to punish him. So she spread a report among the people that Lycurgus meant to put his nephew to death, that he might again become king. Before long, the rumour spread by the queen mother reached the ears of Lycurgus, and he at once made up his mind to leave Sparta until Charileus was old enough to reign. As he journeyed from place to place, Lycurgus studied the laws and manners of the different countries, so that when he returned to Sparta, he might be able to improve the laws of his own land. At Ionia, he is said not only to have read the works of Homer, but to have met the poet himself. So wise were many of the customs described in the poet's books that he set to work to reframe those that he thought would be of most use in his own country. Some stories tell that Lycurgus made a copy of parts of the poet's works, for it is thought that the Greeks at this time, about 800 or 900 BC, already knew how to write. It was thus Lycurgus who made the works of Homer well known to his countrymen. But in all his travels, what interested Lycurgus most was the way the soldiers were trained in Egypt. In other countries, he had seen men who ploughed their fields or plied their trade, leaving their work to fight when war broke out. But the Egyptian soldiers were soldiers and nothing else all year round. 
Lycurgus determined that he would train the youths of Sparta as strictly as the soldiers in Egypt were trained. They should be neither plowmen nor merchants, but the best soldiers the world had ever seen. Chapter 23 Lycurgus Returns to Sparta While Lycurgus was journeying from country to country, Sparta was ruled more badly than before. The laws were not obeyed, and no one punished those who disobeyed them. The citizens who cared for the welfare of the state longed for the return of Lycurgus, and even sent messengers to bid him come home. Kings, indeed, we have, they said, who wear the mark and assume the titles of royalty, but as for the qualities of their minds, they have nothing by which they are distinguished from their subjects. You alone have a nature made to rule and a genius to gain obedience. Lycurgus was at length persuaded to return to Sparta, but before he would attempt to reform the laws of his country, he went to Delphi to ask the help and advice of Apollo. The oracle encouraged the future lawgiver, for it told him that he was the beloved of the gods who heard his prayers and that his laws would make Sparta the most famous kingdom in the world. Then Lycurgus hesitated no more. He went back to Sparta, determined to spend his life for the good of his country. His first act was to call together thirty of the chief men of Sparta and tell them his plans. When they had promised to support him, he bade them assemble armed at the marketplace at daybreak, for he wished to strike terror into the hearts of those who were ready to resist any change in the laws of the land. On the day appointed, the marketplace was crowded with the followers of Lycurgus and the mob who had come to see what was going to be done. King Caraleus, hearing the tramp of armed men, was so frightened that he fled to the temple of Athene for sanctuary, or, as we should say, for safety. He believed that a plot had been formed against him, and that his life was in danger. But Lycurgus soon allayed the king's fears, sending a messenger to tell him that all he wished to do was to give better laws to the state, so that it might grow strong and prosperous. King Caraleus was a kind and gentle prince. His brother king, who knew him well, said, Who can say he is anything but good? He is so even to the bad. When he had been reassured by his uncle, Caraleus left the temple of Athene, and going to the marketplace, he joined Lycurgus and his thirty followers. Lycurgus began his reforms by limiting the powers of the king, for he decreed that on all important matters of state they should consult the senate 
or Council of Elders. The plans of the Senate were laid before the assembly of the people, the members saying yes if they agreed to them, no if they disagreed. Nor were they allowed to talk together over the matter before they gave their answer. Long after the death of the lawgiver, five new rulers, called Ephros or overseers, were chosen from the people. At first the Ephros shared their power with the kings, but little by little they succeeded in getting more power into their own hands. They began their duties with this strange order to the people. Shave your upper lip and obey the laws. Although the kings lost some of their power through the laws that were made by Lycurgus, yet they kept their right as priests to offer each month solemn sacrifices to Apollo for the safety of the city. Before the army marched to battle, it was usual, too, for the kings to pray to the gods to give them victory. But there were other priests in Sparta, as well as those who belonged to the royal houses. The supreme command of the army belonged to the kings who might go to war with any country as they pleased. If a noble or one of the people tried to interfere with their decision, he was punished. A bodyguard of a hundred always attended the royal commanders. But as the years passed, a new law was made declaring that only one of the kings should go to battle at the head of the army, and that one was forced to account to the people for the way in which he carried on the war. In still later times, the power of the king on the battlefield was checked by the presence of two efforts. Sometimes a king was glad of their presence and would even appeal to them to make the soldiers obey the royal commands. When a king died, no public work was done until ten days after the funeral. Herodotus, a great Greek historian, tells us how the news of the royal death was made known. Horsemen carry round the tidings of the event throughout Laconia, and in the city women go about beating a cauldron, and at this sign two free persons of each house, a man and a woman, must put on mourning garb that is, sackcloth and ashes, and if any fail to do this, great pains are imposed. Lycurgus not only made laws to lessen the power of the kings, he tried also to alter the extravagant customs of the people. Gold and silver money was banished from the country, and large bars of iron were used in its place. These bars were so heavy and took up so much room that it was impossible to hoard them. Chapter 24 the training of the Spartans. Lycurgus had seen the severe discipline which soldiers in Egypt 
were forced to undergo. He had made up his mind that his own countrymen should be trained as thoroughly. The Spartans at this time were poor and their numbers were small. Perhaps about ten thousand were fit to bear arms. They were surrounded by enemies whose attack they found hard to repulse. But Lycurgus thought that if each citizen became a soldier, and that if each soldier was trained from his childhood to fight and to endure hardship, Sparta would soon have an army that no other power could conquer. As soon as a baby boy was born in Sparta, he was taken to the council of elders that they might decide if he should live or die. If the child was strong and healthy, he was given back to his parents. If he was weak and ailing, he was left alone on a hillside to die from cold and hunger. When he was seven years old, the Spartan boy was taken from his home to a public training house. Here, the strict discipline commanded by Lycurgus was begun. Shoes and stockings were never born by the little lads of Sparta although the hills and countryside were rough for unshod feet. In winter, they were clad in one garment, just as in summer. Their beds were made of rushes, which they had themselves gathered from the banks of the river Eurotus. This was a hard task, for they were not allowed to cut them with a knife, but must break them with their hands. In winter, the boys used to scatter thistle down on the rushes to give a little warmth to the hard couch. Each child, from the age of seven, cooked his own food, which was scanty and plain. If after their meals the boys were still hungry, so much the better, said Lycurgus. It would teach them to hunt the more keenly, that they might add to their daily portion of food. It would teach them to steal from the neighbouring farmyards or gardens without being found out so a hungry Spartan boy would often climb into a garden undiscovered or even slip into a stranger's larder in search of fruit and food. If the lads were caught, they were punished, not, I am sorry to tell you, for stealing, but for being so clumsy as to be found out. Once a Spartan boy stole a young fox and hid it under his coat. It soon began to scratch with its claws, to bite with its teeth, until the lad was in terrible pain. Yet he would have died rather than tell what he was suffering. Such was the endurance taught to the lads of Sparta. If a boy shirked any hardship or flagged at his gymnastic exercises, he was flogged, perhaps even tortured. One test of his endurance was a terrible scourging, under which he would die rather than utter a cry of pain. In public, the boys were trained to be silent, or if they were spoken to, to answer as short 
exactly as possible. Their short, abrupt way of talking was called Laconic because the name of their country was Laconia. We still use the word Laconic when we hear anyone speak in as brief a way as possible. Hard as the Spartans' training was, cruel as it sometimes became, it yet made boys into strong and hardy soldiers. Girls, too, were trained, although not so severely as boys. They ran, they wrestled, they boxed with one another, while boys and girls marched together in religious procession and danced on the solemn feast days. When they were twenty years of age, the girls usually married. They had been taught, as had the boys, that they belonged to the state, and that they must love their country and serve her with all their strength. So when Spartan mothers sent their sons forth to war, they handed them their shields, saying, Return either with your shield or upon it, for they feared death less than disgrace or defeat. The children were taught to sing in chorus as part of their drill. At some of the festivals, three choirs took part, one of old men, one of young men, and one of boys. When the old men sang a song beginning, we once were young and brave and strong, the young men answered, and we're so now, come on and try, while the boys' voices rang out bravely when their turn came, but we'll be strongest by and by. The Spartan lads were twenty years old before they left the training house to which they had been sent when they were seven. They were then fully trained soldiers and left the training house for the barracks. After they married, the men still had to take their meals in the barracks with their fellow soldiers. Not until they were sixty years of age were the Spartans allowed to live and take their meals in their own house. In this way, almost the whole of a Spartan's life was given to the state. When war actually came and the Spartans were on the field, they were treated with more kindness than in time of peace. Their food was more plentiful and pleasant, their discipline less strict. This was done to make the soldiers look forward to war and to desire it rather than peace. The younger soldiers, too, were allowed to curl their hair before the battle began, to wear gayer clothes and to carry more costly arms. It is said that Lycurgus thought that a large head of hair added beauty to a good face and terror to an ugly one. So famous became the bravery and endurance of the Spartans that even now we call one who suffers hardships without complaint a Spartan. Chapter 25 The Helots When Lycurgus made a law compelling soldiers to eat their meals in the barracks, 
some of the wealthier citizens were indignant. They did not wish to sit at table with their fellow soldiers in batches of fifteen. They would rather have gone to their homes and taken their meals with their families. Nor did they enjoy the plain fare on which Lycurgus insisted, a share of which each citizen was forced to send to the mess table month by month. The most unusual food in Laconia was black broth, which was not a palatable soup. When someone ventured to grumble at the broth, the cook answered, It is nothing without the seasoning of fatigue and hunger. The black broth, with barley meal, cheese and figs, was the Spartans' daily fare. Meat was a luxury which they enjoyed only on special occasions. So great was the indignation against Lycurgus that a crowd assembled in the marketplace to complain of his laws and to speak harshly of his conduct. When they saw the great lawgiver coming toward the marketplace, they were so angry they picked up stones to throw at him and he was forced to fly for his life. His enemies followed him, but he outstripped them all save one, named Alexander. As he turned to see who pursued him so closely, Alexander struck his face with a stick and put out one of his eyes. As the others hastened up, Lycurgus showed them what Alexander had done, and they, ashamed of his violence, told the lawgiver to take the rash youth and punish him as he would. They then went with him to his house to show that they were sorry for what had happened. When they reached the door, Lycurgus sent them all away, save his prisoner. Then going into his dining room, he dismissed his attendants and bade Alexander wait upon him. During the meal, he uttered no word of reproach, although the lad had done him so great an injury. Alexander lived with Lycurgus until he learned not only to admire, but to imitate the industry and the gentleness of his host. And so Lycurgus had the pleasure of seeing a rash and willful lad become a grave and sensible citizen. Each Spartan had a portion or lot of land given to him, on the produce of which he and his family had to live. But citizen soldiers had no time to dig the ground, to sow, to reap, for all their days were spent in drill and military exercises. So their land was cultivated for them by the helots, who had owned Laconia before the Spartans conquered them and took possession of their land. The helots were treated very much as slaves, although they had no taskmasters to drive them to their work. They were even allowed to own property, but they had many hardships to endure and were always ready to rebel against their masters. One of their greatest hardships was that their lives were never safe, for while the Spartans were being trained, 
they were often sent into the country with orders to kill any helot who was suspected of wishing to rebel. In time of war, the helots fought as light-armed troops. If they showed themselves brave and loyal in the service of the state, they were sometimes rewarded by being made free. Once during the great Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens, of which you will read in this story, the Spartans believed that the helots had plotted to rise against them. They determined that the rising should never take place, and to prevent it, they did a cruel deed. For they chose two thousand of the bravest helots, set them free, and gave them a great feast to celebrate the event. Then when the feast was over, and the helots had gone away to their homes, suspecting nothing, the Spartans ordered each of the two thousand free men to be put to death. When the bravest were killed, the others were not likely to rebel. The Spartan army became strong as Lycurgus had foreseen it would. If it were trained according to his strict methods, it conquered Peloponnesus, and for a time Sparta was the chief city in that land. But there was one strange thing about these soldiers. Well as they had been trained, they could never learn how to attack or to take a town that was fortified. War fighting, as the Greeks called it, was beyond their power. Even an ordinary wall or fence would stop them in their victorious course. At sea, too, they were not nearly so successful as on land. Sparta itself was not, like other Greek cities, surrounded by a wall, for when the citizens once sent to ask Lycurgus if it were necessary to enclose their city with a wall, his answer was, The city is well fortified, which hath the wall of men instead of brick. When, after many years, Lycurgus had finished his code of laws, he called the people together and told them that he was going to Delphi to consult the oracle on an important matter which concerned the state. Before he set out, he begged them, and also the two kings and the senate, to take an oath to keep his laws unaltered until his return. This they gladly promised to do. Then Lycurgus journeyed to Delphi, and after offering sacrifices to Apollo, he asked the god if the laws he had made for his country were good laws. The oracle answered that the laws were good, and that as long as the people kept them, their fame would endure. Lycurgus sent this answer in writing to Sparta. Then, that the Spartans might not be set free from their oath, he determined never to go back to the city. Yet it seemed that he could not live away from her, and so, for the welfare of the state, as he believed, the lawgiver starved himself to death. The Spartans kept the oath that they had taken, and when they died, 
their sons and their sons observed it. For five hundred years, during the reign of fourteen kings, the laws of Lycurgus were unaltered and strictly followed. After his death, Lycurgus was worshipped as a god, and a temple was built for him in Sparta, where sacrifices were offered to him every year. <laughs>